Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Karim Ramtula. Uh, he has come out with a new book called Where in the World Should I Invest? Uh, he's been investing around the world and traveling around the world for many years. Welcome to the show, Kareem. Thank you very much, Jordan. Let's just start with a little bit of your background uh, in what kind of advice you've been giving and what kind of traveling you've been doing the last few years. Well, you know, I've been traveling through emerging markets for about uh, just a little bit over 20 years now. And uh, it caught my interest because I've traveled and lived overseas for a long time. And it's really where the opportunity is. So over the last 20-odd years, I've been writing about not only emerging markets, but also global markets in general, and looking for different opportunities in places where most people really don't want to venture, but really need to venture if they want their capital to grow in the future. So let's just talk about the case for emerging markets compared to the United States. I mean, people have been saying lately uh, that you can't trust the accounting overseas, that it may be growing faster, but there's corruption. Uh, that money's coming back to the U.S. and people are buying solid dividend stocks they can believe in, and Europe is collapsing. What is wrong with that argument you hear all the time? You know, it, there, there's some truth to the argument, and you can just look back a couple of years to see some scandals that occurred in China with Sino Forest and things like that, and a couple of Indian software companies. There are always going to be scandals in emerging markets. But, you know, I was in China last year as a guest of the Consul General for Canada, I was having dinner with a couple of people, and one of them was uh, the CEO of a biotech company that was publicly traded. And I brought up this very point because China is one of the few places that I have a hard time myself investing or recommending people to invest because of their uh, very, very loose accounting standards. And his response was, you know, what about WorldCom? What about Enron? You know, the scandals that occur in markets occur everywhere. And when they occur in an emerging market, you might hear about it in that context, saying, well, it's a foreign market there's a scandal or there's accounting issues, so you should be ultra-careful. Well, these days we have to be ultra-careful with all markets because as we found out over the last two or three years, even the reporting requirements and the standards in the U.S. are subject to a lot of criticism, as we saw with the, mass the massive crash we had in 2007, 2008. Indeed. So what are some of the things that people need to know before they invest overseas? The, your introduction to your book kind of gets to that. What are some of the things, overall rules, that people should pass? should, should uh, handle when they're investing in emerging markets? Well, one, one of the main things that people have to consider is how they're going to invest, how to open up an account, whether they're going to invest from the U.S. or they want to invest directly through an account in, let's say, Hong Kong. Uh, American investors and American citizens in general have a very hard time opening accounts overseas, and that restricts them a little bit in their minds to investing in these countries. However, you can do it from accounts here in the U.S., or you can open an account at a place like Boom Securities in Hong Kong and trade all the Asian markets real-time live. So the first thing you have to do is find a vehicle and platform that you're comfortable with. The second thing I think you have to recognize that emerging market investments are not investments that you should consider as long-term holds. This isn't something you buy today and you're going to hold for four or five years. Emerging markets are trading vehicles, and what that means is you look for opportunities to jump into emerging markets, especially when there's turmoil. For example, if there's a coup in Thailand, that's usually proven to be an excellent time to be buying Thai stocks. So you look at emerging markets more as trading vehicles now, and when they finally do emerge, then they become investment vehicles. So that's the second thing you need to consider when you're investing in emerging markets. 
So there have been several uh, crises, the uh, uh, devaluation of the Thailand bot, and uh, you, you've had the uh, when Hong Kong was handed over to the Chinese, and you've had uh, the uh, overthrow of Mubarak in Egypt. You're saying when these things happen, there's kind of blood running in the streets, and that's the best time to buy. Is that what you're saying? It's 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 the best time to buy historically, but you uh, th- there is a difference in in how you should buy different markets. For example, I was in Egypt just after the overthrow of Mubarak last year, and one of the things I do is I go to these countries. I don't just sit you know behind a computer and try to figure out what to invest in. So I went to Egypt in the days right after the revolution. And when I came back, my recommendation to my readers was not to invest in Egypt, even though there was literally blood running in the streets. There were barriers everywhere. The, the buildings were still smoking. You know, it was, it, was, it was a really rough place to be. And it wasn't that I didn't want to invest in Egypt at that point because I didn't see a great opportunity. I met with the head of the stock exchange. It just reopened on the, uh, a couple of days after I got there. It's just a place like Egypt doesn't have a history of coups the way this one occurred. And this was, this was not really a violent coup. It was more of a social uprising. And what happens in a case like Egypt is the government that comes into power after the one that's been overthrown is not always the best option because they've got a lot of uh, fights they still have to fight. There are a lot of grievances they want to file against the people who were there previously. So it's a very unstable environment for investors. That's not saying Egypt will not be a great investment one day. It will be. But then if you swing over to a place like Thailand, I think Thailand has had uh, 17 governments in the last 60-odd years. So really, when you have a coup in Thailand, it's almost like you're having an election. That's the same thing. So a coup in Thailand is actually a very good time to invest because it's got a history of having these short-lived coups that are usually beneficial for investors after just a couple of months, as opposed to somewhere like Egypt, where it might be a couple of years. So is it uh, politics first? You want to see that there are going to be stable politics in the country, and then you look at the the companies second? Is that the way you have to do it in emerging markets? You you do have to look at that, and you have to have a history behind that. And let's go back to Egypt for a second. This is the first major uh, revolution in 30 years. So you really don't know. You don't have a continuation of government policies at all. You don't know what's coming down the pike. Whereas in Thailand, because you have a history of elections that are fairly frequent, even though you know a lot of people in power are corrupt and things that go on in Thailand are not exactly savory for the most part, you still have a consistency in where the country is going in the direction. So politics are extremely important when it comes to you know, investing in emerging markets. In fact, you know, probably the most important thing in some of the smaller frontier markets because they can literally go from becoming an emerging market one day to becoming a basket case the next day. And in the book, you know, I rank these markets as Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3 based on whether they can revert back to the old form of government, which might be very detrimental to investors. Okay. Now, one of the advantages of buying individual securities versus either broad-based mutual funds or ETFs in these various emerging markets? Well, uh, the advantage is uh, similar to the advantage that you'd have in the U.S. markets. If you're looking for an individual opportunity, for example, if you look at Hong Kong, I mean, sorry, not Hong Kong, but Singapore. There's a company based out of Singapore called uh, Hyplux. It's a, a water company. They make desalinization plants. Uh, they make components for companies who are operating such plants in Saudi Arabia, in parts of the Middle East, in China. You know, these are individual opportunities. The company is still fairly small. I mean, not, not microcap, but it's a small company. It does a few hundred million in revenues. But you're not going to find that as a component for any fund. 
So if you're looking for a specific play for clean water in Asia, clean water in the Middle East, things like that, you wouldn't find that in a fund, but you'd find that in individual security. And that one is traded actually in the U.S. as well. And so that's the advantage of individual stocks. What is the advantage of doing a broad-based either fund or exchange-traded fund? Well, the broad-based, what I look at, my favorite vehicle in emerging markets is actually not necessarily an ETF or a a regular mutual fund, but a closed-end mutual fund. And a closed-end mutual fund, for those of you who aren't familiar with them, is a mutual fund that issues a specific number of shares, and it trades real-time on the New York Stock Exchange or another exchange. And the fund trades based on its net asset value. And when you have uh, issues going on in emerging markets and you have a sell-off in these markets, the net asset value of the fund may be at one level, but it might start trading at a huge discount to that level. And that's when you get into one of these closed-end funds as opposed to an individual stock because the rebound can be much sharper and you've got a little bit more diversification. And I use closed-end funds for trading China and for trading Russia and Eastern Europe because there are specific levels at which they can trade at where historically you can see if they trade at a 15 to 25% discount, it's always been a very good time to buy those uh, closed-end ETFs. I remember when I was in Asia in 1997 during the handover for uh, for Hong Kong from uh, the British to China, and I was in Hong Kong for the handover. It was the exact same time as the Asian financial crisis. And the weeks after that and the months after that, a place like Indonesia the Indonesian closed-end fund traded at a 70% discount in net asset value, meaning you could buy a dollar's worth of assets for 30 cents. And that made that uh, closed-end fund a great buy, and that's when I would use a closed-end fund. Or in cases like Africa, where it's really hard to buy individual stocks, you can buy a mutual fund that buys stocks throughout Africa. So it really depends on the liquidity and the availability of individual stocks as well. Are most of these emerging market closed-end funds trading at discounts these days, and what makes them either go to premiums or have the discount narrowed significantly? Well, right now, most of them are trading at slight discounts, not trading at huge discounts. Uh, Really what makes them trade at a premium or a discount is investor demand and popularity. For example, if people are really, really bullish on a place like China, and they have been in the past, the China, uh, the Temple and Dragon Fund, for example, is a fund that trades in China managed by Mark Mobius. That fund has traded up 20 30% premium because people are just really, really interested in that country. So that's why you want to wait in emerging markets for times when people are either not interested or you have a significant shock because that's when you can get them cheaper and you can see where discounts of 30 40% can all of a sudden turn into premiums of 25 to 30%. So you've got a massive move that you can have in these closed-end funds. Are you still saying it's a kind of a trading opportunity, buying these at discounts and selling them at premiums? Or if somebody believes long-term in wanting to invest in emerging markets, are there some things – we're going to go country by country – are there some things they can buy in even broad-based ETFs uh, just to kind of buy it and forget it? There are, but you know, that's one of the things I really don't recommend with emerging markets. I don't recommend a buy and forget it strategy because there are so many variables that can come into play that can really decimate your uh, holdings in a very short period of time if you're not paying attention. It's, emerging markets require you to pay attention. And if you go back the last four or five years, you know, China has been a great hot growth story for at least a decade now. And yet over the last four or five years, hardly anyone has been able to make money in China except maybe shorting it, even though Chinese growth has been 9%. So let's say back in 2007, you bought into the China story, and you thought that China was going to grow at 8 or 9% for the next five years. And you said, well, this is a slam dunk. And guess what? China did grow at 8 or 9% for the next five years, and yet the Chinese market is trading closer to its lows now than it is to its highs. 
And, and why is that? I mean, if, if something is growing, you think that the stocks would do well in general over a longer period of time. Well, it, again, it, it depends on the political situation. It depends on transparency. And what we found out from China is transparency is severely lacking. And when transparency is lacking, investors don't have that confidence to assign a higher price earnings multiple to Chinese stocks. And that, that becomes a big issue. And one of the biggest issues that I've found in emerging markets investing is that if you can't trust the source and you don't have someone on the ground like myself or someone who goes there often to pick individual stocks, you're going to be scared away from investing in it because it just doesn't make sense. And when something doesn't make sense, you're just not going to invest in it. What role does currency play in investing? Do you have to kind of have a prediction for the local currency as well against the dollar, or do you not have to worry about that too much? Um, you don't worry about it as much as you do the political risk because, it, it, of course, it depends on the country. For example, and I'll give you another example of a country that uh, I, was, I was just in Argentina and Uruguay uh, two weeks ago. And Argentina is one of those countries where you do pay attention to the currency because the peso is devaluing and it's probably going to devalue further this year and probably suffer a massive devaluation next year with inflation running at 25%. So if you're going to invest in an Argentine company, you do have to pay uh, attention to the currency. However, if you're going to invest in somewhere in, in a country like Singapore, if you're going to buy Singapore real estate, REITs or something like that, currency is not so much an issue because the Singapore government pays very close attention to its currency. The central bank is very strong. And so that plays in your favor, actually, because you're actually going to be buying into a country with a stronger uh, fiscal and monetary situation than we have here in the U.S., and the chances are that currency will appreciate and not depreciate. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, my guest this hour is Karim Ramtula. Uh, he has come out with a new book called Where in the World Should I Invest? An Insider's Guide to Making Money Around the Globe. Uh, you can find out more about him at uh, website wallstreetdaily.com. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. If you lead a team of any kind, you need to listen to this show. Tune in to Leading with Emotional Intelligence, hosted by Esther Orioli. Esther provides you with the tools and techniques you need to harness the power of EQ to stop setting goals and start changing behaviors in your organization. Get the latest concepts in EQ from a top-of-the-house perspective and have your questions answered on air. Leading with Emotional Intelligence is broadcast live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Karim Ramtula. Uh, he's come out with a new book called Where in the World Should I Invest? Welcome back to the show, Kareem. Thank you very much, Jordan. Uh, tell them about the websites, uh, the newsletters that you write, if they want to find out more about uh, uh, following you on an ongoing basis. Okay. Uh, you can follow me uh, at Wall Street Daily, spelled out wallstreetdaily.com, and that's our, our, our flagship newsletter and our flagship website. And uh, you can find information there about me and about what we do and our different products. And we cover everything from emerging markets, options, technology. You know, my co-editor is uh, Louis Bassanese, who's the investment director. You know, we, we do a lot of different things on that site. And we're, we're pretty cutting edge with what we do. And, of course, if you're interested in the book, you can find the book by its title on the web. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a little bit of a trip around the world now. Let's start with China. Um, what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of investing in China as it is now? As you say, it's growing very fast, but the stocks haven't done very well. What are some of the long-term growth uh, strengths and weaknesses? Well, China's greatest strength is its population and its ability to produce things at a very, very low price. And that's no secret. Everybody knows this. Uh, the, the biggest problem that China is having right now is it's having – uh, social issues within the population. The social issues are coming from this great uh, chasm that's developing between the ultra-rich and the poor. And in a country with you know 1.2, 1.3 billion people, you have you know 10 million people who are super wealthy, another couple hundred million people who are in the middle class, and then you've got a billion people who are really living, at, you know, for you know, making two or three dollars a day or maybe $5 a day or even $10 a day, but that's nothing compared to what you see from the ultra-rich. And so that's a, it's a big problem for China to handle. And I don't know if they've quite got a handle on it. They're having a lot of uh, you know, a lot of social issues that you see when you're on the ground. You don't see them on the news because they block it out very well. But on the ground, when I was in China last year, there were protests in some cities. There were issues going on with uh, the Chinese government itself trying to tell the people who are making a lot of money, hey, tone down your spending because it's, it's not looking good. So China's got a big social issue, and I see that as the major concern going forward. But as far as the strength, the, uh, China, China's biggest problem up until the last maybe five years was finding a way to stimulate domestic consumption, domestic consumerism. And they're finally getting to the point where there is a critical mass right now, and people are now buying internally. And I'll give you an example of what's uh, what I've seen in China, just the transformation over the last uh, 15 or 20 years. Uh, 15 years ago, when I flew into the airport, uh, there were hardly any people around, people coming off my flight maybe and a couple of other flights. You got outside. It was easy to get into the middle of town. There was hardly any traffic. You fast forward now, and I was at the airport at 5.30 in the morning taking a domestic flight from uh, Beijing to Xi'an. At 5.30 in the morning, there had to be at least 42 security lines jam-packed full of people. It made Atlanta's Hartsfield Airport look like Palm Springs. It was crazy. And all these people who were waiting in line were all Chinese, whereas 15 years ago, most, I'd say 90% of people taking a flight were from the West somewhere. And that shows you how much progress has taken place where these people are now consuming inside their own country. So that's the big plus that I see in China right now. And so what is the best way to invest in China, take advantage of this growth, and avoid uh, the downside? 
Well, yeah, the most logical way to invest in China is through a consumer play. However, those consumer plays just haven't been working lately. So the best way that I've found personally, and, and I have to be honest here, the last two or three recommendations I've made on China have actually been shorting Chinese stocks by shorting the Chinese uh, ETF, the FXI, which is the iShares uh, China. But if you want broad-based exposure to China, you would go long the FXI. And you go long the FXI when we get a major event, especially a political event in China. And there could be one coming later this year. There's a shift in power going on right now, and they, that might uh, create some minor chaos in the months ahead. There's issues about whether China is going to have a hard landing or soft landing. I personally think it's not going to be a hard landing. And the reason is we really don't know what the real numbers are. They, they can come out and tell us exactly what they want to tell us, and they can just make that up for the most part. We believe it. So China is a tough market to invest in. The, mar the investment that I like, my favorite investment in China, and that's worked over the last 20 years, is a closed-end fund called the Templeton Dragon Fund. And the symbol for that is T as in Tom, D as in David, F as in Frank. And that's a fund that invests across Chinese stocks but also across Hong Kong stocks. And it's run by Mark Mobius over at Templeton, and uh, he's had a ton of experience in the region. But again, you don't want to get into that fund unless it's trading at least a 15% discount to net asset value. There are many Chinese stocks, uh, big-name Chinese stocks, trading on the New York Stock Exchange, China Life Insurance, China Oil, mm -hmm. Baidu, these big names. What do you think of investing in those as a way to play the growth of China? Well, you know, again, it's a trading opportunity, and we're approaching a point now where those stocks fundamentally look very cheap. Stocks like you know, China Life, China Telecom, you know, the Baidu's, the, so the Sohu, all these companies are trading at very good valuations if you believe the numbers. And I always have to keep coming back to that because it's so attractive to look at a Chinese stock right now and say, boy, that, that Chinese bank is trading at five times earnings. But you have to believe what the earnings are. And so my prefer another way I like to play, and this way, this is another part of the things that, that I do, and I, I've been trading options for the last 15 years, and I also have an options trading service. One of my favorite ways to play China for the short term and also take a lot of risk off the table is to buy a leap option, which is a long-term equity anticipation product, a two-year option that you can buy on the Chinese uh, FXI, the 30 top stocks in China. So instead of plonking out you know, 36 or $40 a share, you're putting out 2 or $3 a share. So that limits your monetary risk and still gives you all the upside for a place like China. Are there things being done to make the transparency better so that people do trust the numbers more? Yeah, they say they are. I have yet to see this. And if you look back, uh, you know, last year, John Paulson, major fund manager, major hedge fund manager, you know, he was invested in a company called Sino Forest, and allegedly he took, you know, several hundred million dollar loss on his investment because Sino Forest uh, was the subject of an investigation by a couple of different uh, media entities that showed that the company maybe was not uh, was not the it hadn't come clean with how many acres of forestry they owned and you know they use satellite visual imagery for this these a lot of different things and we still don't know where this is going to end up but what we do know for a fact is that the Sino Forest shares which were the darling of the investment world last year dropped almost 90% overnight so if someone like Paulson, who's got tremendous resources, tremendous connections on the ground, you know, huge research teams looking into all this stuff, if he can get hurt investing in a company like that, what does that say for the individual investor? 
Stay away <laughs> to individual stocks. Okay, the next uh, country is India, uh, which is also very fast growing and much more democratic, and it's got a kind of a capitalist tradition. Uh, what are some of the pros and cons of investing in India? Yeah, India is a very interesting country. And, you know, one of the things that people will get from reading this book is that I don't look at any of these countries through rose-colored glasses. I'm going to tell you the way it is from my experiences on the ground. And some of those experiences, even though I've had a great time traveling to these countries, it may not result in a great investment for investors. So there's an education to be had here, too. Just because someone says, hey, I'm writing a book on emerging markets, it doesn't mean that everything in this book is going to be buy, buy, buy. There's a lot of sells, too. And India is a good example of how great it is to travel to a country like that. It's actually mind-blowing to go to India, and I've been there several times. But as far as investing, you have to be kind of careful in India, too. And India, you're right, it is a democracy, and it has a history of, uh, you know, very good transparency for the most part. The problem with India is you have uh, illiquidity. You don't have that many stocks that trade that offer you liquidity other than some really big names. And one of the best big-name trades in India is a company called Infosys. The symbol is I-N-F-Y, and Infosys is involved in uh, computer-related consulting you know, business consulting, the call centers, all those things that you read about that have made India so popular to investors, taking advantage of their very, very strong educational system. Uh, Infosys is a, is a giant, not only globally, but also in India. And I'll, I'll tell you why they can do what they do so competitively. When I was in, in India uh, probably two or three trips ago, I visited the Infosys campus, and I also visited a bunch of universities. Part of the reason for me going over there was to see if our own company, Agora, wanted to set up operations over there and do something in India. And when I went to these universities, and these are very, very highly rated universities and graduate schools, they, these companies like Infosys, Accenture, IBM, you know, these companies were going to these universities getting graduate students with advanced degrees. You know, these are the same students that you see in the U.S. working at companies over here. Over there, they were offering them packages to come and work for them with benefits and everything that amounted to something in the neighborhood of sixteen to $18,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, their labor so we, costs are much lower than here. Well, the labor costs of a professional, that's the difference. You're not talking about somebody who's a street vendor. You're talking about somebody who's got you know, an MBA or an engineering degree or working on his doctorate. And someone yeah. of that caliber over here would cost, you know, upwards of eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year to hire. So yeah. you've got this huge labor advantage, but skilled labor, and that's the key. India has got a huge skilled labor force, and they're very, very smart. And when you can put that together, like Infosys has done, and a couple of other companies have done, Wipro, you know, you've got a real advantage in the global markets, and that advantage is going to be around for quite a while. There's still not that many competitors who can provide that skilled labor force. And so how have those done as investments, companies like Infosys and Wipro? Uh, pardon? How, how have they done as investments, Infosys oh, and Wipro? Oh, they've done great. I mean, Infosys was uh, one of those companies where if you bought after, you know, I, I remember going over there, this was in probably 2009, I think I was over there, and we came back, and this was in, in the midst of the U.S. crash, and, of course, when, when the U.S. crashes, these other markets crash, too, but they re- some of them recover a lot quicker. And India was one of those that started setting new highs. If you would have bought Infosys during that period of time because they were making money, you would have uh, doubled your money in a span of about 18 months. And the stock hit new highs last year. 
So these companies have done very, very well for investors. And unlike you know what we talked about in China, where it's really the transparency is an issue, the transparency for a company like Infosys is not as much of an issue. Now, there are trading opportunities in India, too, and those trading opportunities come in some of the other companies like you know, Tata, which is a, a motor car company, which took over a couple of huge British brands, I think Range Rover uh, and uh, Jaguar. I think they bought those companies, and they tend to be more cyclical in nature, and so they, they can provide you a great opportunity to buy into you know, some kind of a crash scenario. And then there's one company which I like especially well, which doesn't trade in the U.S. It's called Larson & Tubro. Larson and Tubro. Larson and Tubro is one of the largest construction companies over there, engineering and construction. And one thing that you find in India, which you don't find in China, is a lack of infrastructure. China has got infrastructure and building going on all over the place. It might be clogged with traffic, but it's there. India has got no infrastructure and it's clogged with traffic. So you're looking at a whole different ball game when you're in India as far as trying to get around. So Larson and Tubro has got billions in backlog right now for projects. Okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kareem Ramtula, whose new book is called Where in the World Should I Invest? We'll be back after this. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday, 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Karim Ramtula. Uh, his new book is called Where in the World Should I Invest? Uh, a website you can find out more about him is wallstreetdaily.com. Welcome back to the show, Karim. Thank you. In our quick tour around the world, we're going to go to Egypt here. We've had the Arab Spring, and supposedly democracy was spreading all over the place, and this would be a great place to invest. What is your view of Egypt right now? Well, Egypt is not a good investment right now, and while it's true we've had the Arab Spring, and it's actually very, very positive for uh, what's going on in the region, it's still very unstable. And the Arab Spring 
Yeah, it, it's, it's a turning point for North Africa and probably for the Middle East in some respect. But as I mentioned earlier in the interview, the government that comes into power second is not always the best government, and we have to see how that plays out. However, Egypt has a lot going for it. It's got the Suez Canal. It's got great uh, fertile agricultural lands. It's got a huge tourism sector, and it's on the Mediterranean as well. And it's close to Israel, it's close to Iraq, it's close to everything in the Middle East. So Egypt is very much a linchpin in the region. If you did want to invest in it, what would be the best way to do it, even though it's risky? Well, there are a couple of companies. In fact, the top Egyptian companies, and this is something that people should pay attention to, Egypt has a population of around 80 million people. And more than 10% of those people are Coptic Christians, okay, the Copts. And these Coptic Christians... The top companies in Egypt are actually owned by the, uh, a family of uh, Coptic Christians, and they own a couple, these companies that are under the name Oriscom. And uh, they have got their pretty much the best uh, line on everything that goes on in Egypt, whether it comes to telecommunications, construction, banking, you name it, Oriscom is involved in that. So it, you can buy Oriscom companies individually through a broker if you can get through to the Egyptian Stock Exchange, which is existent. It, it does exist and it does trade. But the preferred way, really, of buying Egypt for me is through um, an ETF called uh, it's the Egyptian ETF. The symbol is EGPT, and that trades uh, on the NASDAQ exchange. The so EGPT is a very good way of trading it. It's trading almost at its uh, all-time lows right now. So it might appear to be inexpensive, but in my opinion, I would rather see it trade up 10, 15, or 20 percent from here and then get in as opposed to trying to buy it now because there's still a lot of uncertainty on the streets. Okay, one of your favorite countries around the world is Vietnam. Uh, so tell us briefly about the tiger cub of Asia, as you call it. Uh, what's the potential there and some ways to invest in Vietnam? Yeah. yeah, Vietnam was a big surprise to me. I was there last year. I was visiting Vietnam and Cambodia and Thailand. And it really shocked me because when I was in Vietnam, the stock market was down more than 70% from its highs. Vietnam had experienced significant growth in uh, the late part of the 2000s. And the stock exchange, again, was trading down 70%. But when you were on the streets, places in uh, – and I was in Saigon and I was in Hanoi. In Saigon, there was so much vibrancy on the street. There was so much business going on. There were so many things happening. And the work ethic was so strong there was a disconnect between what was going on in the stock market and what was going on on the street. And that's, again, one of those things you can only see when you're on the ground. You're not going to see it anywhere else. If you're looking at the, you know, at the financial pages, all you see is bad news, markets down 70%. So what, what I saw in Vietnam was they're getting a lot of business from China. And this is very important because China is experiencing growth, and that growth is creating a higher cost structure for Chinese exports and Chinese factories. And China operates these factories and sells products to overseas companies at very, very thin margins because they want to be so competitive and they want to garner all the business. Well, those margins are getting really, really pressed because their costs are rising. So what they're doing is they're going right across the border and they're investing in Vietnam. They're opening up factories in Vietnam. Chinese investment in Vietnam is up tenfold in the last couple of years. And so that makes Vietnam a huge beneficiary of what's happening in China. And that's a big plus for Vietnam. And you add that to the work ethic, the young population, the fact that the Vietnamese are uh, extremely uh, commercially minded people. They want to make money. And they're very, very friendly people, too. 
So Vietnam is, uh, is, is one of my favorite investments going forward because you've got this great opportunity to buy into Vietnam right now. The market's not down 70% anymore. It's only down about 60%, only 60%. But it's still a great opportunity to buy. And one of the ways to invest in Vietnam is through a fund. Uh, it's an ETF. It's called uh, the Vietnam Market Vectors Fund. The symbol is V as in Victor, N as in Nancy, M as in Mary. And that has a lot of potential going forward. You might get another opportunity to buy in near its lows if we see a correction in China, which will affect Vietnam. But if we do see a correction in China, the place I would go to would be Vietnam. And near that is Cambodia. Uh, what are the pro and cons of investing in Cambodia? Well, Cambodia is a great story. You know, we, we know the history of Cambodia, how bad it was for all the people and how many people died. And uh, what, what you see in Cambodia is after 1998, 1999, the country started to come alive a little bit, and it's come alive with very, very good technology. And that's a key for Cambodia. When I travel, I usually have to send my passport off to get a visa. When I send my passport off to a place, you know, the Vietnamese embassy or the Chinese embassy or the Russian embassy, you know, there's always some trepidation about whether I'm going to get it back either in time or get it back at all. I just never know. Now, Cambodia, what you do is you upload a photo to the Cambodian consulate. You send them 25 bucks via PayPal, and within 24 hours, they send you a visa that you print out. That's how far advanced Cambodia is compared to a lot of other countries. And if you're an international traveler, this means a lot to you when you can have that occur. And then when you land in Cambodia, you go through a very easy process through customs. The airports are brand new. There's wireless everywhere. And it really strikes you as, my gosh, am I in a third-world country or not? You know you're in a third-world country because everything is cheap. And one of the things that I devised, if you're familiar with a thing called the Big Mac Index, Big Mac Index was devised by The Economist several years ago to measure the purchasing power parity in different countries. For example, the Big Mac cost $8 in Geneva, Switzerland, but only cost $4 in the U.S. It means you're paying twice as much to live in Geneva as you are in the U.S., roughly speaking. Unfortunately, in places like Cambodia and Vietnam, there are no McDonald's. So I came up with something called the Massage Index. And the Massage Index is the price of a massage in different countries. And to give you an example of where Cambodia is on the scale, in Singapore, a good one-hour massage is going to cost about $60. In uh, Bangkok, it's about $20. In Saigon and Hanoi, it's about $10. In Cambodia, that massage is going to cost you $5. And this is as of last year. Uh-huh. So, you so get things are much cheaper. But what is a good way to invest in Cambodia if you want to? Well, Cambodia has a stock exchange. It just opened last year. Unfortunately, there are no companies that are trading on the exchange yet. There will be some companies trading later this year. I think in July or August they'll have their first three listings, which will be a utility company and a bank, and I don't know what the third one is. That will be the best way to get in on Cambodia because you will, even though those companies, when they come out, will go up in price immediately, it will still be a very, very cheap way to invest in the country. Another way is through private equity. Private equity is doing a lot in Cambodia right now. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Doug Clayton, runs a fund called the Leopard Fund, and Leopard Fund has private equity investments in uh, Cambodia. That's really about the only way you're going to be able to get in either a couple of public companies later this year or through a private equity fund. Another country in Southeast Asia, Thailand, uh, has a very uh, capitalistic system but kind of volatile politics. What do you think about investing in Thailand? Thailand is one of my favorite countries to invest in when there is a coup. And that's about the only time I would invest in Thailand because Thailand has got this uh, 
Yeah, Thailand has been emerging for 25 years now. You know, when I first started writing about emerging markets, Thailand was an emerging market. When I look at Thailand now, it's still an emerging market. What that tells me is Thailand is one of those places that really enjoys being an emerging market. It just can't seem to make that jump from emerging market into a normal market that you can trust and invest in all the time as you would, let's say, you know, a European market. And the reason for that is Thailand has suffered with tremendous amounts of corruption within its government. You know, the last couple of governments, uh, Shinawatra's uh, government prior to his uh, sister being in power now, he was thrown out. And he was exiled. And after being exiled, he is still kind of making his uh, his power felt through his family, which is now in power again. But you know, Thailand has got a history of really, really corrupt governments, and people don't benefit from that. I mean, you go to Thailand, it's very vibrant. There's a lot of business taking place, a huge airport, very modern. Everything looks great on the street, but it doesn't always translate to the stock exchange. So Thailand is one of those places where I would invest through the Thai fund, uh, a closed-end fund, when there is a huge correction in the market. Now, there are a couple of companies that trade there, which are in the agricultural and food business, which are also good investments. Uh, Charon, Pokpan, it's tough to spell that, but it's in the book. Now, these are companies that you can invest in when there is a correction and you're looking for a consumer play on Thailand, which is usually the best play in Thailand. There's anything that has re- anything related to consumerism and buying food and things like that, grocery stores. But which would be your favorite fund to invest in Thailand? Uh, the Thai fund. Is, I think it's the Thai capital fund. Uh-huh. Okay. So there would be a broad base. So you, you do think as volatile as it may be, that's a good long-term investment. Well, again, it, not long-term. It's, uh, it, it falls into the same emerging market category. You buy when blood is running in the streets, and in Thailand, that's about every four years. Okay, so you can predict when it's going to happen. Okay, um, moving to the Middle East, uh, Turkey is a country that's uh, had a very volatile market, some very good years, some very bad years. It seems to be turning more towards uh, Islamic fundamentalism. What are the pros and cons of investing in Turkey? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. You mentioned the Islamic fundamentalism because if you if you actually went to Turkey, you'd be, you'd be shocked at the lack of it on the streets. Turkey is one of those places where uh, you're just as likely to see a really really pretty woman wearing a miniskirt as you are to see a woman wearing a hijab or a head covering. So a lot of that is overblown, in my opinion. And I've been to Turkey about six times in the last decade, and Turkey is a very, very vibrant country. It's a very, very westernized country. And if you didn't know any better, you wouldn't think that you were in a quote-unquote Islamic country because Turkey doesn't show that on the streets. Now, has there been a tendency to go towards uh, an Islamic state? Definitely. You know, the government in power, um, Erdogan, is, uh, you know, it's hard to use the term Islamist because that's really been made a negative term. But he's a religious man. And he has no issues with trying to meld Turkey's secular and religious uh, past. However, Turkey has always been a secular country, and after the revolution, after the Ottomans were thrown out by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk back uh, you know, several decades ago, Turkey's military has, has had a mandate to keep the country secular. That could prove to be a potential problem in the future, but right now it seems that the relations between the military and the government are not as strained as people would have you believe. One of the great things about Turkey, and something that Turkey is actually laughing about right now, is Turkey for decades was trying to get into the European Union, even prior to the European Union as we know it today. And it's always been blocked from doing that by Greece. 
And part of the reason is that you know, Turkey and Greece have been enemies for a while, and they both have a piece of Cyprus, and they've been arguing about that. And what's happening now is Turkey is getting the last laugh, because by not being part of the Euro or the European Union, they actually managed to escape this massive European crisis, and their country has gotten stronger, as has their economy, because they weren't affected as much by being part of this union. So, so what investment uh, would, you, would you recommend a fund, or what would be the best way to invest in Turkey if you want yeah, to do the, that? the Turkish fund, TKF, is a very good way to invest in Turkey. Uh, there's a couple of other companies that you want to buy when things aren't as good, and Turkcell is one of them. That's the cellular company over there. And there are, uh, when you look at Turkey, the, the Turkish fund is a, a really great way. The other one is a brewery called Ephes. And, you know, they're a large brewery in Turkey, and Turks like to drink beer. And they like to sell it, too. And people over there enjoy that, uh, that lifestyle very much. It's very conducive to entertainment with the weather and things like that. And Istanbul is a huge city with a huge amount of purchasing power. So Turkey Good. is definitely the top of my list as far as a country to invest in if you want exposure to Asia and the Middle East without actually being in a Middle Eastern country. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kareem Ramtula. Uh, his new book is called Where in the World Should I Invest? We'll be back after this. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you are looking for creative ways to improve your bottom line, tune in to Make Your Move with Alan and Brian Bolio. Their proven track record of helping businesses enhance their profitability will provide the basis for a forum about actionable items based on a business person's perspective. The program will be business talk, but with an economic context, so you'll know how to stay ahead of the game. Make Your Move is broadcast live every Monday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. It's all Arizona, all over the world. If you're a local Arizona high school sports fan or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world, have we got a show for you. The first Internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is The Coach's Corner with Scott Lovely. Tune in to talk about your favorite teams, players, or coaches. It's 100% Arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more. Tune in Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Karim Ramtula. Uh, he uh, runs a newsletter, and you can find out more about it at wallstreetdaily.com. His new book is called Where in the World Should I Invest? An Insider's Guide to Making Money Around the Globe. Welcome back, Kareem. Thank you very much, Jordan. You were saying you were in Argentina recently. What is the outlook for Argentina, and how should one invest there? Well, Argentina, I was just there a couple of weeks ago, and what's hap- I've been there a few times. What's really interesting about Argentina is it, it, it presents a little picture of what could actually happen over here in the future if we're not careful about what we're doing with our, with our deficit and our debt spending and our foreign debt, things like that. Argentina uh, had a major crisis uh, in the early part of the last decade, and they defaulted on their sovereign debt. And that put them in a very precarious position because once you default on your debt, nobody wants to lend to you anymore. So when they finally did get the situation cleared up, there was a huge recession over there that lasted for several years, and property prices plunged, the peso plunged. And in the mid part of the decade, they went out and they pegged their peso to the U.S. dollar just they just pegged it. There was no real fundamental way of pegging it because the peso just isn't worth that much compared to the dollar, so they just pegged it. Well, a couple of years ago, they unpegged it because they found out that, hey, it's not working, and they had to inflate their economy once again because they've got massive social spending, massive social spending. Argentina is run by a very populist government, uh, Christina Kirchner, who became the president after her husband, Nestor, died, is, is almost like the second coming of Eva Peron, and she really caters to the populist equation. And that's made uh, Argentina a very tough place to do business in unless you're willing to deal with really, really high inflation along with a government whose policies are suspect and very unpredictable. So you've got this massive flight right now of capital going out of Argentina, and it's going into Uruguay. And that's creating a massive property bubble in Uruguay. Uruguay property prices are ridiculously high. I was in Punta del Este. You buy a two-bedroom condo with an ocean view in Punta del Este, and it's going to set you back 350 to 500,000 U.S. dollars. And that purchase is going to be made by cash, and it's going to be made by Argentinians for the most part. Saying that means there's no leverage in that market, so a crash in the prices there is going to be difficult. But what Uruguay has become, it's become the de facto safe deposit box for Argentinians wanting to get their wealth out of the country. And getting the wealth out of the country is also becoming very difficult because now the Argentinian version of the IRS requires you to tell them exactly why you want to change your money out of pesos into dollars, where you're going to invest in. So it's become a very, very police state, more so than before, because they don't want capital flying out of the country. So, so are the there ways to invest in Uruguay that benefit from the Argentine capital flight? They, they do benefit, but that story might be played out a little bit right now because Uruguay is almost three times as expensive living standards-wise in places like Punta, twice as much in Montevideo than it is in, let's say, Buenos Aires. What the play is that the in Argentina right now is income-producing real estate. And... Places like Mendoza and Argentina offer income-producing real estate in, the, in, in, in vineyards. And so Argentine vineyards are very, very interesting investments right now because not only is Argentine wines, especially the Malbecs, more accepted and more popular each day around the world, 
but you can actually buy into these vineyards, and that gives you protection against inflation because as inflation goes up, so does the price of grapes that you sell, things like that. So the Argentinians, they tend to invest their money in bricks and mortar, in real estate, and not in the stock market. So are there no stocks or uh, mutual funds that you would uh, recommend investing in Argentina? None. None. Okay, <laughs> we got the idea. Let's move on quickly to Brazil, right nearby, which has had a booming economy. It's got the, the World Cup, the Olympics coming. What are some ways to play Brazil? Well, Brazil is going to have an interesting situation. Brazil, on the surface, it is booming, and when you go down there, it's booming as well. But Brazil is getting out of control a little bit. They're spending a lot of money on things like the World Cup, on things like the Olympics. And Brazilian economy is very, very dependent on exports and what they send overseas in terms of commodities. Uh, that market looks weak, which is looking weaker right now. And Brazil has been spending all this money, which they haven't been generating internally. They've been borrowing for a lot of this stuff as well. The Brazilians could find themselves in a very, very big fiscal hangover situation in a couple of years. And so Brazil you have to be very careful on. Now, there are a couple of companies in Brazil, however, who should be able to withstand this and may provide really good trading opportunities. One of them is uh, uh, Valle de Rio Ocho, which is a huge miner in Brazil. Symbol is V-A-L-E. And it's a very undervalued stock, fundamentally speaking. It trades at a very low PE. It's got a ton of cash, very low ratio between book value and the price it's trading at. The only problem with it is that it is totally dependent on what they export to places like China in terms of uh, metals, you know, ferrous metals, precious metals, every type of metal. So Bali is a very good play during a Brazilian recession or a crisis. You could have bought that stock at 12 or $13 during the uh, U.S. crisis back in 2008, 2009, jumped all the way up into the mid-30s, and right now it's trading in the low 20s with a nice dividend. So that's a good play on Brazil. The other play is uh, one of the favorites out there is Petrobras, which is a giant Brazilian oil company that's half-owned by the government. And Petrobras is a great play if you want to use uh, future oil prices and also dividend growth from that. The problem with Petrobras, and there's always a problem, is very few of these companies are just straight-out buys. The problem with Petrobras is they've got a very high cost structure for their refining, and that cost structure of refining is offsetting the profits they're making from oil and the price of oil going up. What Petrobras has going for it, it's got tremendous technology that's allowing it to drill much deeper than anyone else, anyone else in the world. And they're finding this oil at levels, you know, 20, 30,000 feet below the ocean floor. And that's a very deep place to find oil, and they're finding a lot of it. So that's a good long-term play on Brazil if you're looking for something to buy during a correction. One more country. We're running out of time here is Chile, uh, which has a pretty stable government. What is the outlook for investing in Chile? Chile is a very, very stable country to invest in. They, they tend to uh, be, again, part of the resource sector, so you have to be very careful. I'd say one-third of the Chilean economy is resource-based. So if you're a big believer in the resource play, the commodities play, Chile is a great place uh, to play that. One of the reasons that Chile is so stable is they've got this rainy day fund that comes out of every employee's paycheck towards their pension. That rainy day fund is now approximately 10% of Chile's GDP. And that allows the country a lot of flexibility. They, bound, they bounce back very strongly from the earthquake a couple of years ago. If you consider the U.S., if they had a 10% rainy day fund that was unencumbered, we would have $1.5 trillion sitting around doing nothing except waiting for a crisis. Obviously, we don't. We've got 10 times that in debt. 
So that makes Chile a very, very interesting uh, place to invest in. And one of the ways to invest in Chile is through the Chile Fund, which is a good way to invest in that country. Very good. Well, it's been a fascinating uh, search around the world for investment opportunities. Uh, my guest this hour has been Karim Ramtula. His new book is called Where in the World Should I Invest? An Insider's Guide to Making Money Around the Globe. You can certainly see it at uh, Gamazon. Uh, a newsletter that he puts out is called uh, The Wall Street Daily at wallstreetdaily.com. And thanks so much for our tour around the world and all the places to invest, Kareem. Very good. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you for having me. Thank you, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.